All right, welcome to episode 45 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. His name is Hiram Crespo. He's a freelance translator, blogger, philosopher, and author whose philosophical and opinion pieces have been featured in The Humanist, El Nuevo Día, <clears throat> Occupy.com, Partially Examined Life, and several other publications. He's the author of the book Trending the Epicurean Garden, and he's also a contributor to the Epicureanism chapter in the book How to Live a Good Life. Welcome, Hiram. Thank you for having me. Hey, Hiram. So, I mean, I guess we're going to begin with the kind of uh, the question that's, I guess, most expected at this point. Who is Epicurus and what did he have to say to us about living the good life? So, Epicurus was, um, Epicurus was a thinker from the Hellenistic era of Greek philosophy. So, he was pretty late in the, pro- in the development of Epicurean, um, of, of, of Greek thought. And because of that, he inherited... A sort of a very mature level of the conversation of, of what it means to live a good life and what is truth and all of the questions of Greek philosophy. And uh, there are two main currents that join together in Epicurus. Um, the main one is the atomic theory, the atomism, the, the atomist school of Democritus. Democritus uh, basically argued that uh, there's, there's a point beyond which things cannot be cut into smaller particles and the word atom itself means indivisible so the idea is that uh, things are made of particles so based on that they developed a full cosmology with no supernatural claims whatsoever so it is the precursor of modern physics and it's a very early version of it obviously we have a very much more sophisticated version of the theory of the atom and just the concept of physics today but those were the first conversations in ancient Greece. So he inherited that line of thinking. The other current that came together in the mind of Epicurus and uh, that he made into a coherent whole together with the atomism Mm. is the pleasure ethics. So it's this idea that pleasure is the thing that makes life worth living and that we are, nature equips you with the pleasure and aversion, pleasure and pain faculty to to help you decide what is choice worthy and what is avoidance worthy. And so, for its own sake, so uh, so those are the Cyrenaics. The Cyrenaic school uh, developed in a Greek colony in North Africa, and they were speculating about pleasure as as a source of ethics and morality. And uh, those were the early conversations, and then it evolved. And by the time Epicurus came around, those conversations have been happening for a long time. So he developed a very mature dialogue about these questions, and he wove it all together into a very coherent conversation. And so that's Epicurean philosophy. And uh, from reading your chapter, uh, it was very interesting, actually, your, your intro to Epicureanism. Uh, could, could you tell us a little bit about why it appeals to you personally? Well, my personal history has to do with growing up in, in the Catholic culture, in Catholic religion. And growing up, I remember that um, faith was important. So the idea that you believe in things where there's no evidence. Um, and um, initially, you know, you're very innocent. You're, as a child, you don't have the skills to to develop critical thinking and to question the things that you're told. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's scary to question the things that you're told, frankly. Um, so growing up, I just took what I was given. But then as I was growing up, you know, it, the, the beliefs that I was told to believe in were, you know, insulting to my intelligence and to my dignity. And, and I just had more and more questions. So 
if you read the letter to her to Herodotus, for instance, that Epicurus wrote, um, he's always he respects the intelligence of his student. He's always saying, based on these observations, we can come to that conclusion. So it's very empirical. It's based on the study of nature. So it's always it always goes back to nature and things that you can observe with your senses. And so that I that is that is what I think captured me the most is this idea that initially I was just really um, I remember reading um, there was a book a, a compilation of essays by Christopher Hitchens the portable atheist mm -hmm. and I had been exposed to a bunch of quotes by Epicurus and it was like oh that's common sense Lucretius that's common sense but it never occurred to me that it, there was a very complete that's just beautifully coherent philosophy behind it um, so um, after reading that and reading a little bit of Lucretius, I, I dug deeper, and it really made sense to me. So, so that's how I, in, in around 2012, I started calling myself Epicurean. Yeah, and what's so cool about it is that it's, um, I don't want to really use this term, but I like it, even though I don't think it exactly fits Epicurean philosophy. It's sort of anti-philosophical in the way that I think like Aristotelianism is in some way anti-philosophical. So, and what I mean by that is that like Epicurus doesn't really give you much of a sort of formula for how to live a good life, the first thing, outside of a kind of this sort of vague guide. But then on top of that, what we talk about, um, when we're talking about sort of like, um, I guess the foundation of it is it's less rational and more empirical, where it's not about sort of like how Plato would sort of sit back and kind of like come up with these really fanciful theories, Epicurus says, no, like we know all we need to know just literally by observing nature. And so for me, what's so cool about that is that we don't really have to, I mean, the metaphysical kind of, I, I understand that speculations are always going to be interesting, obviously, because we are by nature kind of like inquisitive in terms of like, what's on the other side? Is there another side? Mm -hmm. But Epicurus, I think, kind of looks at it as there's this dividing line. And these are like these sort of aspects of life that are more sort of theoretical and even maybe hyper and then there's this part of life that we can actually know that even according to kind of my reading of Hiram's chapter that even babies can sometimes um, infer right sort of they can kind of figure out what it is that reality is actually telling us about the good and the bad and the real what do you think about that Hiram that that makes a lot of sense um, and I think one of the things about the Epicurean gospel of happiness is that the 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 more needful things are easiest to acquire. So nature has made it so that the things that you really need to be happy and to make your choices and avoidances are already within you. Um, and that the things that are difficult to acquire are needless and empty and vain. So, um, so even in your own body, you can see it's always self-evident the things that Epicurus is saying. And you can't say the same thing about other, like for instance, I grew up Christian and I was told that you're born with original sin. And when I see a baby, you know, it's difficult for me to conceive that that baby has committed crimes of any kind or that he even has the capacity or the, the way, the way that, the, that he can even think of commit a crime. But when I see a baby, I do see the baby seeking pleasure and shunning pain. Right. Right. I see that in kittens. I see that in puppies. So it's very self-evident to me from the beginning all the way to the end. So Epicurean philosophy just really makes sense to me. Um, I read somewhere in the chapter, and uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, I probably misunderstood. Um, is, is reason divorced from nature? Or it, it, as I read in the chapter, it's like uh, reason's not considered natural or as natural as your senses? No, I, what it is is uh, I think you were, I, I was referring to the canon at mm. that point. Yeah. So the canon in Epicurean philosophy, the canon is the standard that nature sets for truth, the standard of truth. 
So it's basically nature equipped you with a set of faculties that you use to apprehend reality. So you have your eyes, your ears, your nose, your, your taste, you can touch things, and this is your direct connection with reality, right? So that nature gave you. This is not a, an arbitrary thing that some philosopher came up with, but we're just really looking at nature. The pleasure and aversion faculty is another faculty by which you can apprehend nature and you can directly and immediately with no mediation, you can tell things about nature. So the canon does not include reason. Reason comes to the aid of, of your pleasure, aversion, your eyes, your ears, and makes sense, helps to make sense of all of that and, and, you know, if there's a contradiction or something that doesn't make a lot of sense, then reason can come to the aid of that. But reason is not a direct contact with reality. That's what Epicurus was saying. So reason is not included in the set of faculties that are within the canon because those faculties are pre-rational, right? Oh, they're, okay. They're, it's, just, it's just raw data that you're getting from nature, and then you take that data and you make sense of that, and that's the job of the philosopher. But the data has to be pre-rational, it cannot, because when you reason, that's when you make the mistakes. That's when you uh, miscalculate, right? So that's what Epicurus was saying about that. Yeah, it's interesting because, right, uh, it's, our reason is like a double-edged sword, right? Once we have a certain feeling, we may even backwards rationalize what it is that that feeling means, but if we pay right. attention to the feeling itself, it's pre-rational, mm -hmm. therefore, that's where the, mm, you could say, essential truth is. As I understand it. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. So I think the way you're kind of conceiving it is the, um, the way we sort of take in from our senses, right? That is the truth itself. And it's kind of up to us how we interpret it. So it's like the truth is the truth, right? Our interpretations might not actually be indicative of the truth. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, and Epicureans are part of the lineage of, of the laughing philosophers. Mm -hmm. um, this is a thing. And um, one of the uh, one of the things that you observe is is has to do with how we're sort of cynical towards reason, like reason, like people, we are, we say we're reason, uh, like reasoning animals, and we think of that as very dignified. But when you look at human behavior, very frequently reason comes to the aid of all the passions, mm -hmm. and um, sometimes the most, the least noble passions, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can rationalize anything, really. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there's this distrust of reason, and there's this distrust of the idea that reason is the thing that dignifies humans, mm -hmm. right? We fully accept us as, as the com very complex animals with very different drives that are all competing for attention and for control of, of the human body, and reason is just one of those forces of nature inside the human animal. Right, and it kind of seems like they would have been, I mean, I'm not sure, but I can guess that they were, again, sort of sophistry and kind of elaborate, the, yeah, right, right, so elaborate kind of theoretical frameworks that make a ton of sense that but aren't really based on reality. Yeah, Epicurus has one of the scrolls that survived the, um, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius mm -hmm. is called Against the Use of Empty Words. Mm -hmm. So he was very much against just wordplay. You know, many philosophers were doing this in his day. So he sometimes cites specific examples of instances where, you know, they're just throwing around a paradox that makes no sense and that, you know, it's, it's just this en endless, pointless speculation that doesn't happen in Epicurean philosophy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always, you know, the, the investigation is always referred to nature mm -hmm. and you just try to, you can, there are many things, and this is one of the controversies in Epicurean philosophy to what extent can you um, infer something from evidence that is not evident, 
right? So to what extent can I say, based on what I can see, things about things that are, that are not evident about me, so, about what, whatever is evident to my senses? So that's one of the, you know, the places where we speculate in Epicurean philosophy. Um, but, you know, it's always, it always refers back to nature. Nature is always the ultimate authority. And so, Hiram, what would you, as an Epicurean, tell people when they, I'm sure you kind of, you guys obviously get this sort of misconception a lot when people say, well, why would I want to have a moral uh, kind of framework that's fully just based on pleasure? How is that a life that's worth living? Well, uh, one of the things that we would say is that pleasure is not arbitrary, mm -hmm. that it is a, some, it, that nature gave you that faculty. And another thing that I would say is that nature uh, that that pleasure and aversion can be used by everyone so like you were saying a child an old person a man a woman you don't need a priest you don't need mediators you don't need any type of arbitrary authority everyone is equipped with the pleasure aversion faculty not everyone is equipped with the ability to have a phd in philosophy or the time or the desire to do that um a farmer can use these faculties. Everyone can use these faculties. So um, pleasure allows all sentient beings to be able to be moral agents. And uh, so, but you also have to study philosophy to some extent, I think, mm -hmm. to make life worth living. Otherwise, instant gratification is not Epicureanism, right? Right. Well, can you tell us about that? So what is the hedonic calculus and how does that factor into Epicurean philosophy and morality? So um, the, the early, well, so... I think it was the Cyrenaics who first came up with this idea that, that there's an arithmetics too, there's a mathematics of, of pleasure, that, that you, in your choices and avoidances, you want to compare the how much pleasure versus how much pain am I likely to get from this choice or this avoidance or rejection. How much, how many disadvantages versus how many advantages. And you can be very like specific about it or not. I mean, it's, I think it's very subjective, but really, Experience is subjective, right. so so that's so the purpose of hedonic calculus is to make that comparison, to look at your choices before you carry out your choices, and see how much advantage or how much pleasure you are getting from your choices versus how much disadvantage you're likely to get, mm -hmm. with the goal of net pleasure. Mm -hmm. So Epicurus says in the letter to Menesius, which is the uh, summary of the ethics of Epicurean philosophy, he says that pleasure is the alpha and omega, that it is our first inborn uh, good, that when, you know, when babies are born, like I said, they experience pleasure, they shun pain. So the point of, of, of hedonic calculus is to produce a life that, produ that gives you where you can experience net pleasure. There will be disadvantages, there will be sacrifices that you will have to do to gain greater pleasures and sometimes you will choose the disadvantages for the sake of the greater pleasure but that's just that's the process of hedonic calculus the other thing that i want to say about that is many philosophers are looking for meaning and they and and there's this you know you don't see this conversation about meaning in, Epi, in epicurean discourse a lot but i do think that you can frame meaning in terms of hedonic calculus mm -hmm. right like if you're going through a sacrifice or if you're going through suffering or you're you're making some kind of effort, you're always thinking, what is at the end of the tunnel, right? Mm -hmm. What am I getting in exchange for this? And that is the thing that makes your life worth living, and that is the thing that gives your life meaning. And, and I think that if you were to frame meaning in Epicurean terms, it would probably be in terms of hedonic calculus, but then you also have to understand, have a clear idea more or less of what that 
pleasure looks like at the end of your choices and avoidances. Um, so you do have to have like transcendental projects that give meaning to your life. And the study of nature helps you to figure out what those things need to be or what those things need to include. Yeah, so in your chapter, for example, uh, at least for you, going to uh, college and and going through a time of, um, uh, you know, there, there, was a, there was a time when you were pursuing um, a degree, so this way you could have that uh, goal at the end of uh, having a higher income and achieving something. So you went through that sort of a delayed gratification or, uh, or you could say suffering at the time. Maybe it's not all suffering, but to, to, in a sense, right? So this way you can have this uh, net pleasurable goal, which is how I'm understanding uh, hedonic calculus in, in that uh, context. Right. Yeah. Right. You, you, yeah, I mean, you frequently find yourself asking, why am I doing this? And uh, so that's when you sort of have to step back. And, and I think everyone carries out hedonic calculus. They just don't know it or they don't, they don't very consciously yeah. do it. But I think everyone does it more or less right. subconsciously um, every day, I think. Right. And I think that's related to short term and long term gratification. And so the way um, I mean, the way I think that like when I used to think of Epicureanism before I read about it, and I'm assuming this is sort of the popular conception of it, is that it's only about short term gratification. So when people think right, so when people think of Epicurus, they think of oh well, like it's a person who's constantly having orgies, fornicating, um, <laughs> eating sort of delicious food, getting hammered, maybe getting high all the time, right? So it's purely short term gratification. But from what the hedonic calculus indicates, obviously is that no a lot of times the short term is sacrificed for the long term so it's like we're thinking about long-term consequences maybe not more often but definitely at least pretty much on par with short-term gratification so we're kind of weighing the options rather than just saying like fuck everything let's just do whatever we want. <laughs> right yeah right. and pleasure is good right yeah. you know, we're not against pleasure but in Epicurean philosophy, um, we consider it uh, sort of a, an immature way of approaching pleasure if you don't carry out hedonic calculus and you don't think about what's going to happen tomorrow right. and, and you don't weigh the pros and cons. Yeah, I love your example about the like having a beer, right? Uh, the first beer, it's pleasurable. <laughs> There's this undertone of some kind of a buzz. You're having a, a good time. But then maybe by the, uh, it depends on the person, but in your example, by the third one or fourth one, yeah, you may have a bit low tolerance. <laughs> yeah, so mm -hmm. then, yeah, and you feel that the next day. And was it truly worth that short-term pleasure? Probably not. But having that first beer or second beer and maybe then stopping there means you get to have the pleasure. You're still okay for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And that's that hedonic calculus, right. which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the point of that that I was making is that, that a pleasure and aversion is a faculty and that you at all times use that faculty. So that the, the same sex object can be pleasurable and it can be painful in different circumstances. Mm -hmm. So in Epicurean philosophy, everything is always con contextual and you always have to refer back to nature, to the object of your senses and to whatever concrete, like we don't think in abstract terms, we always think of concrete instances. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how you use the canon itself, that you use your faculties at every, in every, with every choice and avoidances. Yeah. And so and, and 
kind of going back to my what I said previously about Aristotelianism. So, I mean, obviously Aristotle was a philosopher, but like in terms of his ethics, what I really sort of, I'm, I guess what really drew me to it was that he was really sure that there really was no certainty in ethics. And so he wasn't really, it seemed like he wasn't about kind of looking or sitting back and um, creating like this really sort of complicated system of ethics in terms of like what you should do in particular situations. For him, he pretty much said, look, there's a golden mean and it's kind of up to you to figure out what that is. And so for Hiram, I feel like uh, in terms of Epicureanism, it's very similar to that. So the way you described Epicureanism was sort of philosophizing with your feet on the ground, which I really liked because it seemed really, not fully, and it's not supposed to be, but a little bit more so disconnected from sitting there really rationalizing, right? Sort of trying right. to figure, use your reason to really sort of pinpoint what the right thing to do is, right? So mm -hmm. can you talk about that? What did you mean by philosophizing with your feet on the ground? Uh, so as I said, you, you um, in Epicurus, the physics and the ethics come together, right? Um, so there's these two currents, and you cannot be truly an Epicurean if you choose one and ignore the other. You have to understand the physics. Um, you have to understand nature. So, um, and also I think that another way to think about philosophizing with your feet on the ground is Epicurus was reacting against Plato. Mm -hmm. uh, Plato had replaced nature with ideas. Plato had had said, you know, this is not real. What you can touch and see is not real. Right. And he had convinced people not to trust in their five senses mm -hmm. and in the things that were self-evident to them um, for the sake of advancing this idealism. And there's all kinds of idealism in the world today right. that are neoplatonic in some way or another right. and to some degree or another. So Epicurus was reacting against that. So he made it his goal to help people to properly use their, fa their faculties, their five senses, their pleasure and aversion, which if you think about it, that's another anti-Platonic device. So he was at war with Plato um, because it's immediate. It's in your body. It's, it's real. It's undeniable. When you're experiencing pain or pleasure, it's self-evident to you. So he's putting you in the center of your own philosophical process, right? And so I think that's extremely important. Um, and um, the other way to think about that is many of these philosophers that like to speculate to no end um, will frequently come up with hypothetical cases to sort of disband the, the Epicurean mode, way of doing philosophy. And they'll say things, well, what if you, they'll say things like, what if you could take a pill that will give you pleasure and you're, uh, you're asleep or you're in the matrix or something, like you're just really divorced from reality, but you're constantly in pleasure, is, does that not make you a true or a good Epicurean? And the answer to that is obviously no, because you have to study nature. Epicurean philosophy is based on the study of nature. So you could do that, you could take your pill and you could go to sleep and just dream forever, but uh, that's not Epicureanism. Epicureanism is the physics and the ethics, and it's a whole coherent system. Yeah, and it seems like for him what was important when he, if at least my interpretation of philosophizing with your feet on the ground, I think that he really, the way he kind of conceived of it was that just use your faculties as best as you can to interpret nature in terms of right or wrong, which is what I think Aristotle meant too. He was like, look, I can kind of give you this vague framework of what it means to be good, but I'm not, I'm not Plato. I'm not going to outline exactly what these absolute sort of ethics are supposed to be for every single person in every single context. And I love that about Epicurus because it's sort of, um, it's first of all not a philosophy that more and obviously like um, like Catholicism which would kind of make you feel like this inherent sinner and it's also mm -hmm. one that kind of understands that you're sometimes going to make bad choices and that's kind of just a part of being a human being right yeah mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I, and I like um, I like that you said um, that it's a combination of the physics and the ethics because actually, what's what's fascinating to me is uh, well, not fascinating. Uh, rather, I was gonna actually say a counterpoint. I was gonna say, well, can't your senses be deceiving sometimes? Yeah. But I'm so happy you mentioned that matrix pill example because mm-hmm. then it actually pieced it into my reality that no, 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 you're still. As also Leon just said, you're using your faculties to the best of your ability to understand the reality of of nature, right? right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's not saying that you know you're you're just a slave to your senses. Right. Um, it's it goes beyond that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and in terms of the hedonic calculator, I mean, it kind of even seems like there's a. It depends on obviously like what your frame, or not your framework, what your foundation is for information. But it's obviously quite possible that you could be wrong in your conception of sort of what when pleasure is sort of outweighed. Sometimes maybe a person might think, oh, uh, or they may even sort of deceive themselves and think, oh, it's okay, I can tolerate that hangover. It's not going to be a big deal. Let me get drunk tonight. <laughs> but I mean, I guess the idea is more so than anything. I mean, obviously using your reason, you're also kind of learning from experience too which is i from my understanding is that also a part of epicurean philosophy well yes um uh, i think i had something more to say about hedonic calculus and i lost it oh okay it's okay it'll come back but yeah so in terms of experience do you feel like experience is important for epicurus in terms of learning um it, it's completely it's it's about empirical reasoning right. it's mm-hmm. about experiences um it's also about relations. I think you can also argue that Epicurean philosophy is experienced as a conversation among friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the sources, a lot of the writings are really the conclusions of a long stream of conversations, some of which go back to Democritus and to the Cyrenaics, to the previous schools that, you know, like I told you, there were two sort of rivers that joined together in, in, Epicure- in the Epicurean stream. And many of these conversations, like hedonic calculus comes from the Cyrenaics. Um, he just like developed it into like, I don't want to say perfected it, because I think we all have to perfect it in our lives. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so um, the way that you experience, Epicurus says at the end of, of letter to Minicius, he says you should study philosophy by yourself and with others. Mm-hmm. So there's the pleasure of learning by yourself and there's the ple- pleasure of, of friendship and, and sort of the circles that you build around you with philosophy. And that's how you're supposed to experience Epicurean philosophy. So also, I think friends are really important because it's like you were saying, we sometimes don't, don't know like what tomorrow will bring what my choice is, like I may underestimate the hangover from tomorrow. So friends give you a more objective approach. Um, they give you, they help you think about things that you might ha- not have thought about, or uh, they, they give you a different perspective. And they also challenge you and they give you uh, frank criticism, which is part of the process of Epicurean friendship, uh, without which um, you could be like Trump. You could walk into your plane with, with the toilet paper hanging from your, your shoe and if you don't have any true friends yeah. then you won't know right mm-hmm. so that's kind of important that you have to have friends not flatterers yeah yeah and what right. oh yeah so I, I like the contrast you make between the person who decides to be a lone wolf and that and then someone who actually decides to engage with others and with the people in your in your community like I, I like how you brought up um, Dunbar's number and tribalism in in the uh, essay 
Um, so Dunbar's number for our audience, it's, uh, there's a, there's this uh, concept where uh, people are used to living in tribes of either 50, 100, or up to 150 people. Mm -hmm. And after that, you start to kind of forget names, people and all that. So yeah, and that would be your community or your tribe, Mm -hmm. right? And then, um, so I like how you, so uh, tribalism, right? That's actually something that, um, I, I learned about um, actually in the past uh, few years. I mean, I've known about tribalism, but I've gotten more deep into it. And I see that there are issues with tribalism where it's like uh, our community versus your community, your beliefs versus mine, or we'll just find ways to make ourselves different from each other and all that. But um, I like that you point to how that understanding of tribalism, especially in recent years, has yeah. kind of... I don't know, it kind of sucked out the the essence of what it means to actually engage with each other and be in communion with each other and um, be friends with each other, right? And that kind of drew my attention back to like the, the importance of, of that aspect of, of community and how it's not something that we should divorce ourselves from even if we see all these um, issues with it. It's something that we should try to develop and try to right. uh, work through. Yeah. Yeah. Fostered the sort of positives of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Epicureanism has been called the philosophy of friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, the idea is that. Um, well, so I also cite this research on on how loneliness is a um, a health risk mm-hmm. on par with obesity and smoking. Yeah. Um, because then you know there's this idea of the natural measure of 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 community and the natural measure of wealth and. You know, there's this conversation in Epicureanism about what is the natural measure, um, because obviously, you cannot, you don't have the time span or or, or the the attention span or, or the time to really attend to all beings out there. But you do, you do, are, you are part of a network of people, and then there's a point beyond which you cannot, you don't, you won't remember names like you were saying. But there, there there's a point under which, if you are a lone wolf, then that that has health problems that creates health problems for you so it's this idea of studying nature again see we refer our investigations about what is the real life to nature and there's research there's research about the science of happiness a lot of which is actually happening here in chicago by the way mm-hmm. um, on uh, on what it, you know what happens to your body when you're happy what happens to your body when you're alone and all these things and the more you study that the more it confirms many of the things that epicurus was saying and so, I mean, my thinking was when you guys were, um, when we were talking about, oh, so when we started talking about friendship, so, and when Hiram, you were telling us about that, we need obviously people to kind of um, give us a more realistic perspective of what our actions are, or the consequences, rather, of our actions. Um, I don't know if you guys got a chance to watch uh, the Netflix show Love is Blind. Not yet. No. Oh, okay, so it's pretty much, it's like, it's pretty much like every, okay, so I don't want to give too many details about it, but so in the kind of show, there was this couple, um, so it was Mark and Jessica, and so Mark was like this really like kind of um, sort of a bright-eyed, like naive dude, and he was like really young, and he, he fell in love with this woman who was much, not much, but maybe, I don't know, let's say eight years, I think, older than he was, and so his friends and like the people on the show were trying to tell him like, hey, look, she's really not that interested in you, and he just couldn't hear it, like it was so difficult for him to even tolerate 
tolerate that. So he would constantly kind of reassure himself that she actually was. And so, of course, the ending was kind of like, I, okay, I don't want to spoil it, but I mean, I'm sure you guys can kind of figure it out. So what I was thinking about was like the times of my life where like, you know, my kind of friends were telling me like, hey, you know, this thing that you're doing right now, it's actually going to literally lead to some bad consequences. So even though in the short term, it's making you happy to think this way and to behave this way, actually in the long run, you're going to be hurt. And so kind of the way we were experiencing or rather the way we were kind of conceptualizing experience, I think even unfortunately sometimes the friendships, as great as they are and as wonderfully as wonderful it is that people obviously are persistent in trying, I think sometimes we actually need the experience of suffering and pain to actually learn the lessons that we could otherwise learn if we just considered what other people were telling us. Right. Yeah. But it's uh, but it is good to have friends that are convict that are have a commitment with your happiness and with your with your well-being and, and with your self-interest uh, that you sometimes don't see uh, because then after the fact you look back and you say well I know I know this confirms that this friend is really like my insurance like policy against maybe problems that I may have in the future so that's a good feeling that's a, that's a very important I think source of pleasure yeah, even hypothetically say you didn't listen to your friend and you went through that suffering. Right. Who was there for you right. when you're suffering? It's your friend, yeah. right? And so. I think like the best friends are the ones who don't actually tell you like, ha ha ha, I told you so. You see how much you wasted your time. They're the ones who kind of understand. <laughs> so messed up. No, there are people who definitely... I know who there are people who do that, but that'd be so bad if your friends So it's friends. like, uh, yeah. So my thinking is like, um, even though like obviously a person is, uh, first of all, I mean, I guess the best friends are the ones who can empathize and can understand how difficult, like let's say with Mark, like you can tell it would have caused him a lot of pain to accept, to even just consider the fact that she really wasn't as into him as he wanted wanted her to be so I guess for the friends who would stick by him they would kind of get that that like it's not that it's not that he was being stupid it's just that for him in terms of pleasure and pain the pain was too significant to tolerate so in the short term he thought it's uh, and this is I'm assuming an unconscious process obviously this is not something that he's just like yeah let me convince myself that she loves me but somewhere <laughs> in the back of his mind I think his brain was sort of considering the short-term consequences and it's like mm, a lot of pain if I even sort of doubt her affection for me a lot of pleasure if I convince myself that she is isn't to me so it's like I might as well just obviously choose the form or rather the latter than the former and I guess the kind of the good or the real friends are the ones who get that that I mean in terms of um, in terms of our growth and our sort of learning that all of us go through these processes that it's like it that's just how short-term and long-term gratification or um, short-term and long-term consequences work that a lot of times we really need the experience of the long-term effects to really kind of um, to really kind of zero in or kind of hone in on the fact that literally like we're making bad short-term decisions but but, I mean, that's kind of just a part of growing up. It's a part of development, and that's okay. Yeah. yeah. You, I don't think you can avoid that. Yeah. yeah. And, and those experiences, right, they develop your ability to distinguish in, in those kinds of situations in the future, right? right? Your, your discernment is developed. Yeah. So, for example, um, then, then you would know better how to judge, you know, uh, uh, pleasure pain you know whether you're going to move towards pleasure right. or away from pain mm -hmm. based based on your experiences yes so it's not all just like something that's uh decided in the moment there's there's also this development that goes on which which increases your ability to kind of discern how to deal with those situations right. mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. i want to say a little bit something extra about friendship mm -hmm. if you study the the uh, the wisdom traditions of many cultures throughout the world in almost every one of them or I want to say every one of them 
you will find peace you will find advice like the wisdom traditions are the ones where the elders and the people with more experience are using storylines or poetry or whatever to pass down wisdom and a lot of times that's that comes within the context of you know this is where people go when they have existential crisis or questions or just issues or they're growing up and they're learning and they go to the elders and, and they learn and in every wisdom tradition you will find the the issue of of discerning true friends versus false friends and it's very obvious to me um, having read everything that i've read that this is one of the 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 essential questions in every wisdom tradition that people are always confused and and disappointed because they chose a false friend or because they don't know who their true friends are they think the flatterers are friends and they surround themselves with flatterers and they think they're friends and they're not and um, it takes a crisis it takes something like that to really help you to understand who is your true friend and who isn't and that happened that's a universal experience and that's why you see it in every culture that that there will be you know, so like for instance in the Havama which is um, from the Norse tradition they 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 give concrete pieces of advice to help people understand who is your true friend and who isn't so things like well if someone is complaining about coming out of their way and going a long distance to come and see you, mm -hmm. then that's not a true friend. If they're happy to come and see you in spite of the distance, that's a true friend. Mm -hmm. And it just gives a bunch of different, very concrete pieces of advice to help you discern true friends from false friends. So that's extremely important. Um, and you know that that's important because you see it time and time and time again. In the Ramayana, in, in the Hindu epic, um, it all sets off with just listening to the gossip of the wrong woman who was in your court as a king. And then you just let that snowball into this huge mess that was completely unnecessary because of gossip. Yeah. Because you couldn't tell who was your true friend and who wasn't. So so that's almost the universal concern that, that I've always seen. So in Epicureanism, you have this space where these questions are addressed um, very systematically and, and almost like it's part of the culture. We're, we're a philosophy of friendship. And um, there's a friend, there's a French intellectual. His name is Michel Onfray. Um, he's a, a modern Epicurean. He coined the word eumetry, which um, I think means a good measure. You metry, you good measure. And it, it, he translates that. He coined this word. He says that that it means just sort of the the healthy distance that you need to keep keep with each person. That you have to sort of with each person. It's different. But you want to keep your, you have, there's this logic of concentric circles around you. Mm -hmm. That you have your intimate friends that you really definitely know that you trust and you need to know who those are. And then you have that, that bigger circle around you and the bigger circle. And then you have the people that are outside of your circles that you do not trust. And you need to know who those are also. And um, so that, that you know, this is how we philosophize in Epicurean philosophy. We, we look at concentric circles and, and we think in those terms. That's so interesting. And I was thinking, um, so like Hiram, I'm a psychotherapist. So in our field, the kind of misconception a lot of times is that like when let's say people, um, I don't know, kind of abruptly leave therapy or they discontinue treatment, most of the time people think, oh, well, it's because the therapist is like too harsh or they're unempathic or they're not sympathetic enough. So that's actually a misconception. So it's the opposite. So people usually for the most part leave therapy because therapists are actually too nice. And so the biggest criticism that I've gotten from other people about like prior, you know, kind of um, stints that they've had 
in treatment is that the therapists were actually dishonest not I don't want to say dishonest but they weren't fully forthcoming with their thoughts so when a person would come in with some sort of issue and it was kind of clear to them that they were in some way in the wrong the therapist would just kind of like you know try to coddle them and sort of soothe them and say no no, no it's okay this is all sort of understandable so a lot of times when people just like when they're looking for friends when they're looking for a therapist they're actually looking for somebody to be honest with them because I mean the point of therapy is growth so when they kind of get a therapist who just you know kind of tells them that oh they're okay and everything is okay they kind of get that that therapist is more so looking for you know kind of a paycheck than they are in terms of um, or they are um, looking to kind of help them grow or to looking looking to help them kind of become better or more mature people uh, with therapists, I've always noticed that there's there's almost a need to say you're okay because you have to earn the trust and you have to create a safe space where um, whatever is going on, you have to be able to voice it as, as a patient. Uh -huh. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's difficult to navigate for you. I'm, I've never, I mean, I was an advisor for LGBT youth many, many years ago, uh -huh. um, but I never really like got to hear like, well, I didn't get to hear too many like secrets like mm. I, I dealt with a lot of homeless youth and I dealt with a lot of like existential crisis of that sort mm -hmm. um, because it's the LGBT community and that's that's part of the demographics um, but I never found myself in a situation where where I had to like sort of give frank criticism in, in that way so yeah yeah so it would be um, so the founder of dialectical behavioral therapy her name is Marsha Lenahan the way she kind of conceptualized it was that there has to be a balance so there has to be a balance between acceptance and understanding and obviously seeing why you are the way you are or why you're making the decisions that you're making but balancing that obviously with responsibility and the need to change because obviously the choices are detrimental to you and likely to other people around you so what the pretty much the complaints that my clients were telling me was that it's more so on the acceptance where it's like the person was saying like no no I understand why you're like this but they weren't really saying like here's why you also need to change like it's not okay that you continue being this way so it seems like um I guess it's a struggle I guess for all of us and friendships and therapy and teaching whatever that we kind of have to find a way to balance obviously criticism with empathy and I mean I can imagine that that's a struggle for all of us to some extent mm-hmm yeah, yeah with, with friendship um, there's you know there's there's a porous like boundary between friendship and therapy I think you know we all have to be therapists for our friends at some point or another and ideally you want to have friends that have there there are friends that you have because they're fun and they're fun to be around and they're clowns and I think every community needs that but then there are friends that you need because of their maturity because they've been there and they've done that and they can warn you and they can sort of give you advice and if you have if you know what's good for you you'll listen and so what would have Epicurus have, have had, if, I guess, to say about those concentric circles? But I'm assuming the idea came obviously much after him. So, but we'll, yeah. No, there's a, there one of, so there's uh, 40 principal doctrines and there's other like letters and things that he wrote. Um, mm -hmm. Principal doctrine 39 specifically um, deals with this idea that you know, you, ideally you want to make everyone your friend. Right. But obviously that's impossible. Right. So um, so there's, there's this thing about, well, Insofar as it is advantageous, if if you have someone in your life who is a relational delinquent, you know, for whatever reason, because they hate you or because they have maybe mental health issues and or they, they can't control behavior or they're a danger to you or whatever, you know, these are things that are outside of your control, but there will always be those people that you cannot have in your circles. 
So um, insofar as it is advantageous to both of you, then you want to exclude them from your circles. Mm -hmm. So this is principle doctrine 39. So the idea of umetry that Michel Onfray is talking about, it, it, it literally ties back to conversations that were happening in the original Epicurean garden. Interesting, which is smart, yeah, right? You wanna be able to make a distinction, right, between who is your real friend, who is someone that maybe you should keep a healthy distance from, uh, who is someone who maybe they have something going on in their life and it's a rough time for them, so maybe you'll be there for them, but depending on, it's, it's strange, it's, it's such a nuanced uh, situation. Like, for example, if someone is uh, uh, toxic, right, you don't, necess you don't wanna be near them, right? But maybe it's a friend that you, you've known for a long time and so their value overall to you, it's still, it's still high up there. Right. They may be acting in some kind of, if not a toxic way, in some kind of way that's detrimental to themselves and others around them. And sometimes you want to keep like a healthy distance. Mm -hmm. But it, it really depends on your own judgment, right? Because yeah. sometimes you might want to see if you could still do something for them or offer them something to right. keep them uh, in your circle, so to speak. Uh, but yeah, if it gets to the point that they can no longer be there, it's healthier for you uh, not to not to be around them and it's also healthier for everyone else in your circle because if uh, there's there's the saying right that you're you're the combination of your the five closest people in your life right mm. yeah so for example if you had somebody in that particular very intimate circle who is uh, let's say toxic that could actually impact all of your relationships with everyone right. Right, and that's that's demonstrated. Uh, there's uh, remember I told you there's a lot of happiness research happening here in Chicago. One of the universities had a research that I cite in, in other essays. I don't know if I cited it in this essay uh, for the new book um, on how happiness is contagious. Mm -hmm. um, and but and then you know there's there's mathematics of that. So there's they're really looking at this very scientifically, but they're also um, studying how depression is contagious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Um, I think we're more, I don't know to what extent, like, this is like part, I know that you're into psychotherapy and stuff like that, but I think humans, human behavior, we're a lot more like a school of fish than we originally thought. Like, we are social, we're embedded into social networks, and even at a very subconscious level, we start, like, um, talking like and thinking like the people around us, because that's normalcy, and we do that subconsciously, not because we mean to, but, you know, humans develop their identity through socialization, that's how we are. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and there are many like nuances to that. It's not just how you communicate, it's not just how you think, it's even your moods, your happiness, your depression, all of that is contagious. So, um, so I also wanted to say something about, yeah, boundaries. Mm -hmm. Boundaries are very important, um, but you also have to make an, an sort of an investment in your friends. Um, the, there's something, um, Philodemus was, Philodemus of Gadara was an Epicurean philosopher from the first century. He used the word planting seeds, something along the lines of planting seeds with your friends. So that the things that you do with, for your friends are like seeds that you're planting that will yield some kind of return in the future. Mm -hmm. So um, he speaks of values very literally. You know, that there's literally value that you get from your friends. A friend is a form of currency. And one of the studies that they did here in Chicago, um, I think his name is Christakis, uh, I think his name is, a Greek name. Mm -hmm. He did a study where he compared research on how much money correlates to happiness 
and uh, and how much friends add to your happiness. And uh, I think the average um, value that he attaches to a friend is about twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So even though I mean you don't really want to think about your friends in that in those terms, but I think that is that is a different way of thinking about value in terms of socially. You know what value are you getting from your friends, and it also helps you to think about the urgency of having friends because you really are wealthy when you have good friends. Right, and I think that wealth in itself is a means to an end. I mean, if you don't, if you just, if you're looking for wealth as a, as an end and for its own sake, I mean, the idea is you're going to be fairly lonely. But if you're looking at wealth as a way for you to have, like, let's say, obviously, resources to spend on friends, to spend with friends, then I mean, then there's a point to it, or at least there's a good point to it. Yes. Um. Another sort of point. Uh, another field of of human. Um, I guess. Um, Positive psychologies is another field where um, Epicurean philosophy finds itself vindicated very frequently, and a lot of what you read in positive psychology is almost Epicureanism by other na- by another name. And uh, I just lost my thought. It's okay. <laughs> so I mean, what's so good and what I wanted to mention earlier is that like when it comes to friendship, Alan is really good with like kind of mentalizing um, sort of landscapes which I really like because there are times where like I will tell him that I'm upset with somebody and my thinking is super short term and I'll give him all of the reasons and I'll be like I don't, I'm so angry at this person I don't want to be friends with him because blah 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 <laughs> right and then Alan will be like well let's look at the long term right is it possible that maybe kind of like in the bigger picture right you guys have a good friendship but then in the short term something's going on which is why he's kind of acting like this and backing away and like I obviously hate to acknowledge it because I want to be right. But he's, he's like really, really good at that. Like trying to put himself in other people's. Well, pers- here's the thing, right? At least in my personal experiences, I've had uh, friendships with people I loved like so much, and then I had it go badly. Like there's there are a couple of people that uh, I wish them well, obviously, but I have I haven't spoken to them in a very long time, unfortunately. But and learning from those relationships, I was thinking, how can I? avoid that result with other people mm-hmm. and I was thinking well let me think about it what is is my perspective always the right view right mm-hmm. or what is what is their perspective have I tried to understand what is their perspective and then not just that say they really did do something wrong again there's this whole long-term thinking of it of well how bad is it that, that thing that they did maybe Maybe I, there should be some sort of maybe reward and punishment going on, but then still consider that that's a very valuable friendship and right. maybe you don't want to throw it out. Maybe maybe something will change with time as well. Maybe your mood is going to change, right? right? Uh, because again, we rationalize based on our moods. Right. I mean, so, be- yeah. Yeah, and maybe even a conversation would help because it's like if you have this long-term pattern of virtually good relations, right, then obviously it would make, I guess, more sense to be like, hey, you did this thing that was really shitty. What was going on? Yeah, what was going yeah. on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what, what were you have thinking? friends who have been there for many, many years, um, then you look back at things that happened 20 years ago and they seem very petty. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. There's there's that as well. Mm-hmm. There's that as well, right? So, uh it, again, it goes back to being able to distinguish between, you know, who, you know, where, where are they at, right. and then also versus the short term versus the long term, right? right? You don't want to, I don't know. I just, uh, again, yeah, it's it's nice to think about what the other person is maybe feeling, right. or I, I like to think of it this way, right? We we all tend to, if if we get attached to a certain perspective, I mean, if I think I'm right, 
I mean, probably the other person thinks that they're correct as well. And what's their reasoning for why they think that? Because their strength of their certainty is probably, I mean, it's probably not the same as mine, but let's assume it's the same as mine. Mm-hmm. Why, why is it the same as mine? Right. And then maybe there's an answer where it's like something in the middle or, mm-hmm. yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah so. I, the, the point that I was going to that I lost and I, it just came back to me, mm-hmm. I was talking about um, uh, positive psychology. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I was going to say about that is that people draw their happiness not from things but from relations and experiences. There's an excellent um, TED speech by the author of Stumbling Upon Happiness. Mm -hmm. I don't remember his name now. um, Oh, I can pull it up. It's like a 16-19 minute speech, TED speech on Facebook that that I saw. And when you listen to it, it's almost like listening to Epicurean Ethics. He just uses different words for what he's saying. But one of his conclusions is that people get their happiness from relations and from experiences, not from things. Things just put, they just give you debt and and slavery, you know, because debt is really slavery. There's no real boundary between debt and slavery. That's true. So I think that's one of the confusions of values that we have in our society today, that people think that surrounding themselves with things is going to bring them happiness, but who are you going to share those things with? What experiences are you going to have with those things? You know, that's really where you get the happiness from things. Yeah, and so his name is Dan Gilbert. And so what's so cool is that I actually, I from time to time write about Dan Gilbert and I bring him up, I bring him up often in my sessions. He's the one who created, uh, I mean, he didn't discover the concept, obviously he doesn't say he did, but he created the idea for it, which he called synthetic happiness. The idea that we kind of mentally create happiness in our minds. So there's no such thing as obviously an objective version of it. But yeah, he's awesome. I like him a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, so I mean, if you guys don't mind, I kind of want to shift the conversation back to pleasure, if that's okay. Please. Okay, so, um, <laughs> so Hiram, my kind of thinking of Epicureanism, and I think, um, I guess a lot of times it's, all, it's a lot of times misinterpreted as, um, well, you know, pleasure in the sense of being selfish, right? A lot of times when people think of Epicureanism, they think of everybody kind of being, you know, sort of individually selfish in the sense of we're only looking for our own pleasure, right? So how is it that we can kind of build a society in that? kind of framework or on that foundation but my thinking of it is obviously a bit different and i'm sure you would agree is that like when we're thinking about pleasure and we're thinking about our natural abilities for most people unless you have like what's called antisocial personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder most people don't find pleasure in like let's say even if they gain something when they know another person is harmed by it so when we're talking about pleasure and we're talking about let's say making good decisions we're also factoring in the other person's state as well so and what I mean by that is that when a person kind of um, is, let's say, when the when their ethics is based on the pleasure principle, it's not only that their own pleasure, it's not only their own pleasure that they're looking toward. They're also looking toward the pleasure of others. And so they're not saying to themselves most of the time, oh, I feel good about this, but others feel bad and I don't care. So what they're doing in terms of the Hedonic calculus is they're taking in, you're taking their pleasure into consideration, but also they're taking in other people's pleasure and pain into consideration because it automatically and naturally affects our own pleasure and pain. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, uh, well, th- so one of the premises of Epicurean ethics is that there are empirical things that can be known about human happiness. Right. So we know, for instance, that loneliness has health effects on par with obesity and smoking. Mm-hmm. So um, so you do need your concentric circles, but 
that's that's where I think concentric circles are very important because I don't think I think it's easier for me to feel the pain and the pleasure of a person in my immediate circle if they're suffering if they're sick if they get the coronavirus then that will affect me almost on a physical level right. but you know the farther away they are in the concentric circles then you know the less I can relate to their suffering if I meet a stranger and I see their suffering then I may have instant empathy but that's because I'm witnessing that suffering right. like I said we don't really have the the attention span and the time to take care of all sentient beings and in the Epicurean cosmology obviously we have an infinite number of atoms in all directions so there's probably an infinite number of planets with suffering beings mm -hmm. right so you have to place yourself where you are you start where you are but the way that you experience Epicurean philosophy like I said is within your circle of friends yeah. right so um, the the, idea, the the pleasant life as described by the Epicureans is just being surrounded by people that you relate to and that are your friends and that have a commitment with your own happiness and with whom you are happy uh -huh. and to have that intimacy that that is one of the most important pleasures in Epicurean um, in the Epicurean lifestyle so so yeah um, and um, and I also there's research now also concerning I think I read this Bonobo and the Atheist, the Atheist and the Bonobo, um, which is a, an anthropologist for from from the Netherlands wrote this book, and he's just uh, looking for where in nature do we find morality, and he looks at altruism, and he 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 did he did a very the book is very uh, it's one of the best sellers now in anthropology, but he talks about contagion of of um, even like yawning. And, and how, like, in nature you see in chimp communities and in ape communities you see there's a contagion of yawning where uh, one ape will engage in a certain behavior and the others will mirror it and they do this unconsciously. They're not fully aware of that and I think humans do it also. And so I think that, like I said, we're more of a school of fish than we thought we were. Like, we, we pride ourselves on being individuals, but we're all embedded in social networks in some way or another and that's how we exist, really. And to kind of look at it in terms of another example, when we think of people, right, sort of, again, the kind of misinterpretation of Epicureanism is that it is a selfish philosophy where it doesn't, it seems obvious to me that it isn't. So if let's say, you know, kind of how we talked about like drinking and the long-term consequences of that. And then obviously we talked about maybe um, like not studying or let's say, I don't know, dropping out of school and obviously the long-term consequences of that. So a lot of times that we can, or in the context, even let's say of sex, right? So this is sort of a misconception a lot of times that like straight men they're just able to kind of have sex and they don't care about their partners right so I mean from my own kind of practice that's actually not what I see so um, so what people would prefer is or what straight guys in this case would prefer is to be able to just be upfront with their partner about it because they actually don't like the long-term consequences of hurting another person's feelings so in a sense it's like um, their way of thinking is Epicurean a lot of times because a lot of times they do want to just like obviously sleep with somebody and kind of move on but also in the kind of long term they a lot of times don't do it because they're afraid of hurting let's say the other person's feelings right whether um, whoever it is right whomever you know the prospective partner is so the way they a lot of times like with some of my straight male patients the way they kind of see it is that like I don't even want to sort of bring it up sometimes because I'm afraid of hurting the other person's feelings and that's I think very Epicurean because the idea is that even though I'm in the short term gonna gain pleasure in the long term if I somehow deceive this person or if they expect something that I'm not even really aware of right but I can kind of get the hint at mm -hmm. then if I kind of hurt 
hurt them in the long term and obviously it's you know pretty obvious to me then the pain of that is not worth the short-term pleasure in the moment so i think in terms of the kind of epicurean system is that I don't know if always, but I think most of the time, the system considers the other person's perspective. That it's not about short-term, you know, sort of selfish gains. It's more so about the bigger picture. And, and like you said, um, Hiram, like in terms of like depression affecting us, other people's pain affecting us, it's always considering the fact that our consequences will always affect others and their effects will literally affect us in return. Right. And I think initially when you meet people, a mutual advantage, there's, there's frequent references to mutual advantage in the principal doctrines. Um, and I think that's that's sort of what binds people together initially, but then as trust builds, as you spend more time with the person and there's more of a connection, then that changes. And, and I think there's a shift and there's different, you know, more expectations and more of an investment in the other person. Um, so I think relations also change as they mature. Yeah. And so I guess one of our final questions is going to be, according to Epicurus, how should a philosopher live? And can the view itself be applied to society at large, like um, in terms of, let's say, a universal basic income, as you mentioned in your book? Uh, you know, we have to experiment with that. And, and no one, I think, has answers about what we're going to do. I think um, automation of labor is an interesting paradigm. Mm -hmm. It's scary. And it could be a utopia or it could be a, a dystopia. Mm -hmm. it, it's, and, and I don't think that we should expect, I almost expect government to fuck it up. Like I think people, individuals have to make choices in their life to make sure that they can survive in the coming economic times. Right. I don't think there's any nice way to put it. I think that, that we are going into a dangerous situation where there's an expulsion of people and there's not going to be enough labor for, for as many people. Right. So we need to reinvent the labor paradigm. We need to reinvent the retirement paradigm. Maybe we can create a society where working 20, 25 hours a week, you can make your, you pay your bills. But I think we're very far from that. So um, I think, you know, I don't know. I, I want to open up the conversation in, in my, in this essay, mainly because I don't really have the answers. Yeah. But I think this is important and I think it's possibly a great opportunity. And I would love for intellectuals in other realms, in economics and, and philosophers to have more conversations about this. You know, what can we do in our lives in the coming, in, in, in this paradigm that we're entering into, in the economics that we're entering into, to, you know, in the Epicurean, the Epicurean question is really, how can I live pleasantly and be self-sufficient in this economy? Right. That is concretely the question that you're answering for yourself as an Epicurean. So that's what I'm looking to answer as an Epicurean. And I don't yet have the answer for that. Uh -huh. But that's why I want to open up the conversation, because I think this is extremely important. And um, and I think that that it's it's potentially a very dangerous situation where you know if people can't survive and they can't pay their bills if they had children whose mouths they need to feed you know what are they going to do if the robots replace all human labor and another comparison that we can think about is when we invented cars and we invented trucks and all these other machines mm -hmm. we stopped using horses for labor right. right. And I think that, you know, I think many people at that time thought, well, this is a very compassionate development in, in human civilization that we don't have to enslave horses anymore. You know, now they, they're free. They can go back to nature. Right. But I don't think we have the same courtesy with other humans. Right. Think about that. And I think this is a huge moral failing of our time that we need to think about 
if the machines are going to replace us, then how can we make human life dignified in spite of all the things that are coming in, in this economy? Yeah. So that's, that's, I want to frame the question. I don't have the answer for that. Yeah. And I mean, I, the question is extremely important though. Yes. And the way I think, like, um, the way that we sort of frame, obviously, uh, the, the way rather modern capitalism is framed is that because the corporations are the ones who are the job providers, then in some sense they're the ones who kind of get to decide what happens to the labor force. Unfortunately, what happens a lot of times is that when jobs are automated, people just lose their jobs and that's kind of it. And they just sort of send, maybe they'll give them some yeah. sort of severance pay and package and they'll just kind of send them on their way. So I think, um, and I know a lot of people are going to hate this because, I mean, government seems to be antithetical to some people. Or like like um, just repugnant for whatever reason. But the idea is that government is really in some way going to have to step in for those people who are losing their jobs. Because until right. we figure that out, I mean, corporations aren't going to give them more than some, whatever, maybe three months severance pay, if that. And so if that's the case and these people are literally just kind of jobless and maybe even homeless, then it's going to be up, as a, up to us as a society to kind of take care of them until we figure out what to do with labor as a whole. Right. Corporations will give you a short term yeah. solution. So if they get really like I, I experienced in 2008 when the banking, yeah. the, the banking re part of the, the economy collapsed. I was working for the banks um, when um, Bank of America took over LaSalle Bank. I was one of those people mm -hmm. that was in the call center. And uh, that was my second layoff from the banking industry. Yeah. So I think I got like six months mm -hmm. of service package. I had worked there for five years. You know, but that's nothing. And then a lot of banks froze their hiring because of what was happening in the economy. So I was very confident, bilingual. Um, I was third place banker of the year in 2004, and I couldn't find work, yeah. right? Because there was just no jobs. You know, many banks froze their hiring, and it was like a whole other situation in the economy. And so I think I went into it very overconfident, right. thinking that I, it was going to be easy to find a, a job. And, and and you know, I just really had to completely reinvent myself. Mm -hmm. But that's going to keep happening over and over and over again. Back in like the previous generation, people used to work 30 years for the same company. That's never the case anymore. Right. That's very rare now. So I think the, these are these are scary times for for that we're going into because there's going to be many many more people in the world and less jobs available for them. And and many of those jobs, like you used to be able to make a good a good amount of money as a trucker. You know, now there's self-driving trucks. You didn't need a bachelor or, or a PhD or a master's or anything. Anyone could just do that job. But now, like, people who are not maybe the most educated cannot get those jobs anymore. Mm -hmm. That's thousands of jobs that are going. So we really have to think about that, the intellectuals of our generation. Yeah, and it's so interesting because there are like so many people who will say, oh, well, I mean, corporations don't owe it to anybody to provide work. I agree with that. That's You're absolutely right. But then the government owes it to us as a society to take care of those people who can't even though they want to find work. Yeah, and then there's even, uh, even in the short term, even right now with the current economic situation, right? right? I mean, a lot, for example, if airlines aren't bailed out, uh, a lot of airline workers, a lot of staff, is, is they're going to be laid off. Right. What do we do about those people, right? Mm -hmm. um, then there are other, for example, in New York City, um, all businesses that are not considered essential have been closed. But then all those people who have small businesses, uh, for example, my, my father happens to be one of the owners of a small business. Now that it's closed down, he can't take care of the people who are working under him. Also, we don't know how long this is going to last, but say say it's at least a few months, and I hear projections of even longer, but let's say it's just a few, right. 
that's three months of income. Uh, and then also, it's, and then those people who are now looking for a job, uh, I mean, maybe, I know Amazon is hiring right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, because they, they, all of a sudden there's this huge demand for more workers, mm -hmm. sure. Uh, but even then, uh, there aren't any simple solutions to situations like that. Mm -hmm. And I see the government right now is stepping in to do something, but at least, but it's not like a one size fits all answer. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, for small businesses, there, I mean, right now there's something set in place where you can get a, a loan. Um, that yeah, for 90 days you don't have to pay back, or there's no interest and all that, mm -hmm. uh, and you could pay your workers, uh, uh, your employees rather, and all that. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really speak to how are you gonna, you know, that's three months, let's say, worth of money or more, right. let's say. Mm -hmm. How are you gonna make that back and then pay off all this money? It creates a lot of complications, right? right? And that's just that's just talking about small businesses. And just putting people further into debt. Yeah, mm -hmm. and and there's other situations that this current uh, economic situation has created, but that's just one, for example. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very short term, what we're doing. Um, but I think everyone has to come up with long term, like sort of existential plans for their self sufficiency. Mm -hmm. um, Epicurus specifically forbids begging so you never had a culture like the cynics for instance or like the buddhists where they have the monks and they then are forbidden from working and they just get alms and you know they eat whatever people give them that never happened in epicureanism so there's a component of epicurean philosophy that is about economics microeconomics is really how do you manage your business and how do you how do you get self-sufficient but obviously the conversations that they were having 2000 years ago some of it transfers like ownership of, of property and getting rental income was mentioned in one of the scrolls mm -hmm. uh, that survived the uh, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. So there are things that you can still do to become self-sufficient today, but almost all the things that you can do to become self-sufficient are long-term strategies that I think, I think you should weave into your hedonic calculus and, and make them your the things that, make, that give your life meaning, sort mm -hmm. of, and, and your transcendental sort of projects that, that for your life. Um, but yeah, so self-sufficiency, autarky was one of the principles of Epicurean philosophy. And that's where this conversation started out in my essay is that, you know, I wanted people to think about what is your long-term plan for self-sufficiency? Because that is a question that the Epicureans were trying to answer. And I think we need a modern conversation around that. I don't think the ancient conversations can transfer over because we live in a very different society today. Wow, that's a great point to end it off at. Oh, well, actually, I did oh, have a question. Sure, go ahead. Um, if, if there was, let's say, and you may have said it already, so don't mind if, uh, but if there was a message you wanted to impart or some concept that you wanted everyone to understand or, or know more about, like at least in the mainstream, like to a mass audience, what's something that you wish everyone uh, knew or knew more about? For Epicurean philosophy, I would say the core concept of Epicurean philosophy is that you get one life. Mm -hmm. You don't get a second chance. So it gives you, I think, an urgency to live. And uh, I think one of the sayings, uh, Vatican saying 14, I think, Epicurus says, do not postpone your happiness mm -hmm. because you only get one life. So you didn't exist before you were born and you're not going to exist after you're dead. So there's this time and this is the time that matters. So make it worth living. And don't postpone your happiness. Just be happy here now. 
um, and learn how to be happy here now. Obviously, everyone has a different learning curve, but that's that's your existential task to make your life worth living and to be happy here now and not postpone your happiness. Right. I love that. All right, Alan, final questions before we go, man? Oh, right. If we wanted to follow your work, um, how, how could we find it online? So um, I'm the founder of societyofepicurus.com. Um, so the point of that is uh, I'm trying to make sure that there's continuity in Epicurean philosophy and, and trying to help Epicurean intellectuals of our day to defend these ideas in the public forum. So um, societyofepicurus.com is the main place where you'll find me. I have a blog, The Otterkist. Um, I can send you the links later. And yeah, you can absolutely. The description of, of the video. Uh -huh. um, and that's the main... Um, I have other platforms and, and I write in Spanish and other there's other things going on, but those are the main places where you'll find me. We also have a Facebook group, uh -huh. Garden of Epicurus. Okay, cool. So I can also give you that link and you can share it with and, your and, and Twitter? HC LaSalle and Society Epicurus. I'll also send you the links. Okay, cool. All Thanks. right, Heido. Any final thoughts before we go, man? This was such a great episode. No, thank you for having me. Thank you so <laughs> thank much you for, for coming, coming on, on, man. See you. Yeah. All right, man. Talk soon. Wow. Yeah. That right? was that was cool. That was a really fun episode. All right. So before we uh, just want to do a quick ad, obviously, before we uh, before we wrap up. So are you stressed that you can't leave the house to keep up with routine, fighting with chronic conditions such as diabetes and hypertension, having trouble coming up with healthy ways to feed the family or simply need that support system set up to make your goals a reality? So Vera with Verified, with Verified Nutrition offers a, f a free 15-minute consultation on her website at Verified, that's V. E-R-A-F-I-E-D Nutrition N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N dot com. And you can read more about her individual journey and experiences. You can send her a message, check out her blog page and services that she offers and make the choice to get verified. Cool. I'm going to check that out. All right. <laughs> and if you guys want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Uh, like and subscribe hit the bell, hit the bell. Mm -hmm. uh, find us on O4L yeah so at the O4L online network at O4L online network com and you can find us under the show section at Seize the Moment Podcast and new thing we just added a Patreon which we're going to include a link to at the bottom of our description if you would like to contribute if you'd like to support us in any way we can improve the quality of the show um, just you know why not make some make a little money off of offering value yeah. that'd be great so again the link will be at the bottom of the description and thank you guys very much see you guys next week